Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Yes, welcome to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where I, your rabbi, reveal how the world really works. And I do this as a public service, because people who do not know how the world really works, well, they pretty much make a mess of their lives. Because if you don't know how the world really works, then there are a whole lot of things you're not going to be able to do. Things having to do with how you relate to other people, how you relate to money, how you relate uh, romantically, in every possible way. Knowing how the world really works is an enormous asset. And that is what we cover on this show. How do you know if you are a prime candidate for the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show? How would you know if you do need instruction in how the world really works? Well, if you whine about things being unfair, then you do not know how the world really works. Yes, if it were not for me, you wouldn't have a clue. If you feel everyone has a right to medical care, everyone has a right to housing, or everyone has a right to a job, or everyone has a right to a trampoline or a hamster, well, then you do not have a clue. Yes, if not for me, you wouldn't have a clue about how the world really works. If you're a married guy and you feel you no longer need to worry about your personal conduct, you don't have a clue. You don't know how the world really works. If you're a married woman and you feel you no longer need worry about your appearance, you don't know how the world really works. If you're a single guy and you feel that a woman should care about you and not your bank account, <laughs> you don't know how the world really works. As a matter of fact, I just wouldn't have a clue if not for you. Yes, if not for me, you wouldn't have a clue. If you're a single woman and you feel that a guy telling you he loves you, that means something, you don't know how the world really works. You do not have a clue. If your main focus while interviewing for a job are questions that might violate your rights under government law, if that's your main focus when you're trying to get a job, you don't have a clue. You do not know how the world really works. If you're a married guy and you feel that career decisions confronting your wife are her business, and that expressing your opinion or your preference would violate your commitment to feminism, you do not know how the world really works. You don't have a clue. I just wouldn't have a clue if not for you. Yes, if not for me, you wouldn't have a clue. If you're a parent and you feel that your primary obligation to your children is getting them on that yellow school bus every morning, you do not know how the world really works. If you're a parent and you feel that encouraging your kids to address you by your first name will help them develop into normal, healthy adults, you don't have a clue about how the world really works. Yes, if not for me, you wouldn't have a clue. If you're a parent and would rather your children cheat at an exam than smoke a cigarette... Well, yes, you do not have a clue about how the world really works. If you're a parent and you occasionally say to your child, don't tell your mother or, or don't tell your father, you do not know how the world really works. If you're a single mother or a single father and you expect your child 
to accept your boyfriend or your girlfriend with warmth and enthusiasm while you don't know how the world really works. If it weren't for me, you wouldn't have a clue. If you're a parent and you feel it's okay for a doctor or a nurse to insist on speaking to your 12-year-old without you being in the room, you don't have a clue. You don't know how the world really works. If you're a parent and you feel it's not right to impose your moral values on your children, you do not know how the world really works. Yeah, right, if not for me, you wouldn't have a clue. If you're an engaged guy and you encourage your lady to keep her own name after marriage in the hope that it will show her how wonderfully enlightened you are, you don't have a clue. You do not know how the world really works. If you're a guy who's been dating a girl for four years now, confident that it's working out really well for both of you, you do not know how the world really works. If not for me, you wouldn't have a clue. If you're a young guy and you feel that enjoying your job is more important than how much money you're earning, you do not know how the world really works. You don't have a clue. If you're a married guy who feels your wife ought to be cool with your platonic relationships with ex-girlfriends or with female work associates for that matter, you do not know how the world really work. If you're a married woman and you feel your first priority is not your husband but your children, you do not have a clue about how the world really works. If you talk your girlfriend into agreeing you won't have any children after you marry and then you later expect her to happily stick to that agreement, you do not know how the world really works. That's right. If it weren't for me, you wouldn't have a clue. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is what we focus on in this show. Making sure that we all understand with a deep certainty rooted in every molecule of our consciousness that we really get how the world really works. And uh, here we go with some letters. Remember, please, that uh, these letters are not chosen necessarily because they are representative, uh, but mostly because I personally found them interesting or, or meaningful in one way or another. And so here's one that came from Holland. Uh, Dear Rabbi Daniel Lappin, Robertson Susan, and the fabulous team behind the scenes. I am your regular and attentive listener, reading client, and a lightweight woman warrior. I have been contemplating of writing to you for some time now. One of the first thoughts that involuntarily appears in my mind after listening to your podcast is, why didn't I know that 20 years ago? My journey started 30 years ago when my family and I, a 12-year-old girl with satin ribbons in her hair and a cheerful smile, embarked on a train to emigrate to Israel. We wanted to live as Jews among our own people, and I remember thinking that we will no longer have to face the ubiquitous bearded profiles of Engels, Marx, and Lenin. Most of all, I was hoping to find God the Creator, because I strongly felt he was the one. While on the job acquiring the language and habits of the Israelis, it became clear that the biblical, traditional heritage and the present life had a painfully sharp division. After finishing school, I was mobilized to the military. Spending my weekends weeping and sleeping, I have never questioned the matter, as it was my civil duty. Now that I listen to your lessons... I finally understand why I felt so crushed during those years, why the guys seemed so strong and united in their camaraderie, while the girls were split in many groups, vociferous and caustic. In my mind, heart and soul, I yearned for my own family and home, but everyone around suggested and behaved to the contrary. Go work, go study, 
get a degree, get another degree, which I did, but it was not about to get me a good job, a home, nor happiness. As one wise man said, the more knowledge, the more grief. Somehow I listened to the inner voice and devised my own plan. Times of emissaries with jewelry long gone by, I used the internet and met a nice young man. We have communicated by electronic letters for a while. He used to describe very passionately his work in civil engineering, designing roads and bridges, foundations, reinforced concrete, and a kind of uniform, a safety helmet and large neon yellow jackets and sturdy boots being part of the vocabulary, uh, doubled with his 2.04 meters height, which is nearly 6.7 feet. Yikes. He was the only one standing head and shoulders above the other guys, and whenever he said he would call, he kept his word. It was within one week after we met in person that he introduced me to his parents. How should I address them, I asked, looking up from my 1.52 meter, less than five foot height. Mom and Dad, he replied cordially. Not long afterwards, I was given the best Hanukkah present a girl can wish, the keys to his house that became our home. A far journey from the Soviet Union where I grew up. Dear Rabbi, your lessons are confronting and comforting, enlightening and empowering, liberating but urgent and imperative of taking responsibility. Endowed with and grateful for those gems of wisdom from the past, I am beaming like that young girl on the way to the promised land, looking forward to a greater future together with my husband and our son. With a deep bow, and she provides her name, and she said she says originally from Kishinev in Moldavia, then from Netanya in Israel, and now from Delft in the Netherlands. And um, and that was a uh, a letter that I found quite charming. Uh, here is one from a listener in Ghana, and the the background to this is that. A co-worker of this gentleman uh, asked me whether I would be able to sign a copy um, of Thou Shall Prosper, the Ten Commandments for Making Money, and uh, put a personalized message in for uh, his his boss. Um, and he arranged all the logistics to make it happen, and I did do that. And uh, then I got a letter back from the boss. Dear Rabbi, Candidly, I don't know where to start from, but I was really astonished when blank, the name of the co-worker, presented the gift to me, and I started crying. I'm still short of words, but may God bless you and your family for the lives of many that you have touched and continue touching. Blank, the, the name of that person, was the first to introduce me to your book. And my life turned around with the in-depth knowledge and understanding of ancient Jewish wisdom. I am a Muslim married to a Christian wife for the past 25 years. And the greatest gift God has ever given me in the 50 years of my life is my precious wife. And we both listen to your podcast when driving together and we have a copy of your book too. Please help me say big thanks to Blank and his family, namely the person who, who arranged all this. Continuing the letter, I had the chance to do a diploma course in Israel three years ago, and I had the opportunity to see most of the interesting sights and knowledge of the Jewish people, which has made me a better person, complete with your books and audio. Further to the above, I would be grateful if you would let me know your schedule, your free time, before, and he gave a recent month, uh, to respectfully grant me an audience for a few minutes to have the opportunity to fly and meet you wherever you may be, to interact and have a picture with you for my library. would like to end by saying a big thank you once again for taking the time to write me such a wonderful script on my birthday, which uplifted my soul beyond understanding. 
I'm still speechless, and God bless you and your household. Shalom. And it's signed by this businessman in Accra in Ghana. And the sequel to that is that um, while I wasn't sure that I fully understood um, his request that I give him some scheduled time, I nonetheless did. I gave him a couple of times, and he then... um, asked whether he could select one of those times and he would fly to the United States uh, to meet with me. And sure enough, that's exactly what he did. Um, He and his wife uh, showed up at the appointed time uh, to meet Susan Lappin and me. And we spent uh, a couple of hours together, which I felt was reasonable considering he had flown all the way from Accra in Ghana uh, for a meeting. And so we had a very, very interesting time. And it so happens, um, you know, I'm I'm not going to say coincidentally, because I don't think there is such a thing as coincidences, but um, I will be meeting him again because I will be actually speaking, giving a few speeches in Ghana uh, within the next little while before the summer. So funny how these things work. And maybe a last one. Here's a third one. Uh, The background to this one is that um, I was the rabbi of a synagogue that I planted in Venice, California, on the outskirts of Los Angeles, near the beach. And um, there was an individual there who became a very uh, devoted and dedicated student of my Bible teaching, and uh, we became friendly as well. And uh, on one occasion, uh, Susan Lappin's childhood friend, a girl she grew up with, being friends from elementary school, came out to visit her from New York, uh, where we were, of course, in Los Angeles. And uh, this young woman met my student and and friend, and uh, they got married. And uh, as time went by, they had five children, and they raised a a beautiful family. And their oldest son then became um, something of a student of mine. And, uh, and, you know, we we studied a number of times together. And uh, and I, I actually officiated at his marriage, which was all very exciting because, uh, uh, you know, a couple of decades earlier, I'd officiated at his parents' marriage, my friend and Susan's friend marrying one another. So that was a joyful marriage a while back. And then more recently, I officiated the marriage of their oldest son. So th- this was all quite lovely. This is a letter I got from that son. Now, I, I get letters from him all the time, and they're all interesting, very interesting. But uh, this is just one. Uh, Rabbi Lappin. I'm about to leave Las Vegas after a short business trip. I was thinking about how much I've benefited from a business ideology that values real relationships as opposed to viewing people as objects to manipulate for personal gain. It's not only helped my business, but maybe more importantly, it's given me a feeling of mission and a sense of fulfillment while making new connections and deepening existing ones. It's ingratiated me to others who prefer to work with me instead of my competitors who might offer them more money for the same thing. It's a perspective that I've learned mostly through you, sometimes directly, and sometimes through my father who learned it from you in the first place. I'm very grateful, and it's signed Ellie. And so... um, uh, beautiful, beautiful letters, and I'm sure, I'm sure you envy me receiving letters like this. Uh, I'm very grateful, uh, profoundly humbled and grateful by the sort of letters that I do get from people. They're, they're quite wonderful. I read them all and uh, respond to as many of them as uh, I possibly can. Now, some of you may have encountered a report from the General Social Survey. General Social Survey is an institution at uh, the University of Chicago that periodically examines trends and uh, 
spreading of ideas in American culture. Uh, they've recently they've looked at things like how willing are Americans really to pay deeply out of their pockets to solve the problems of climate change, and they and they do this every few years and they measure changing trends. Um, they did one on uh, attitudes towards firearms and uh, somewhat interesting. Uh, I'm always very skeptical of polls, and uh, I'm proud to remind you, if not obnoxious to remind you, that uh, in the lead-up to the November 2016 presidential election, I told you then of the fundamental flaws in polls, in spite of the naive uh, and childlike belief that so many people have uh, in the polls. So I don't have uh, excessive confidence in these polls, but uh, the uh, general social survey is being spoken about because they've uh, announced a big increase in atheism in the United States. And I, I thought that we ought to take a little bit of a look at that because uh, I am very skeptical about it with good reason. I don't believe it. I, I think there's interesting information there. But the notion that atheism is on the march and Judeo-Christian faiths are in retreat, don't, <laughs> don't you believe a word of that. Uh, we, we may see the predators prowling around, but uh, it's not going to mean very much. And I'm going to explain to you why that is. So if you've heard this, if people in your circle have been talking about, oh, atheism is growing in the United States, and it's not so simple as that. And uh, it's basically largely not correct, at least in no practical way. Let me explain what I mean. First of all, uh, how about we start with a simple fact? 50 years ago, 1969, now I hadn't yet come to the United States, but uh, 50 years ago, um, the journey you could fly from New York to LA, and by the way, you can check the schedule. I'm t I'm <laughs> what I'm telling you now is not an approximation, it's an exact. It took five hours to fly from JFK to Los Angeles Airport, LAX. That's what it took. And uh, I wasn't here until um, oh, uh, the, the mid 70s or after that, I, I arrived as a, a young guy. Uh, but I travel between New York and L.A. very often. And yeah, it was a five-hour flight. But uh, I'm talking about 69 because I just like looking at a slice of 50 years. Uh, it did take five hours exactly from Kennedy Airport to landing in Los Angeles. Gate to gate, by the way. Um, also, you could jump on a shuttle uh, between Washington, D.C. and New York was a very popular flight as you can imagine and that was a scheduled flight of 45 minutes okay i want you to remember those figures across the country new york to los angeles five hours and uh, washington dc to new york or, or the other direction 45 minutes gate to gate okay now check airline schedules right now today and um, check to see the flight time for New York to Los Angeles. You will find that uh, it's always six hours or longer. How's about uh, flying between Washington and New York? Well, it's now 75 minutes, an hour and 15 minutes or longer. What is the explanation for that? Do you think those airports have moved further apart from one another. Do you think global warming, you know, heat causes things to expand. Do you think the global warming has caused the surface of the United States to expand dramatically? And therefore, it's pushed the coasts further apart. And therefore, flying between New York, all right, you know I'm talking nonsense, right? <laughs> so what is this? Why is it that it now takes an hour and 15 minutes to fly New York to Washington when it used to take three quarters of an hour? And why is it it now takes six hours and a bit to fly between New York and Los Angeles, whereas it used to take exactly five hours? Answer, planes traveling more slowly? No, not really. No, uh, 
what is taking place there is something that uh, people who travel a lot know. It's called schedule creep. Schedule creep, or sometimes they call it padding. What is it? What happened is that at a certain point, I don't remember the exact date, uh, what happened is that the federal government got involved in measuring the punctuality of airlines. And uh, what, what happened is that the Department of Transportation started uh, publishing an air travel consumer report, and, uh, and airlines used to be rated on their punctuality. And the punctuality was based on how well they kept to their published schedule. Well, I think you see the answer, right? Uh, airlines discovered that when all things were equal, passengers chose airlines based on punctuality. After price and uh, things like that were, were taken care of, after that they looked at the airline's government reputation for punctuality. So airlines reacted completely rationally. Right? Whenever the government gets involved, whenever the government interferes in commerce, the, the market responds rationally. So what did the airlines do? Well, they just changed the schedule. They now made the New York-Los Angeles flight six and a quarter hours. And that way, if the plane flight was delayed and it got in after, you know, it got in five hours and 45 minutes, the pilot came on the PA when you landed and said, we just want to thank you for flying with Delta and uh, we've got you here 20 minutes ahead of schedule. Whoa, applause, everything's wonderful. Yeah, they changed the schedule. They padded the schedule to allow that. So this way, if there's a late departure, even if it's an hour late, they can still actually get in, get into a destination, um, A's, you know, A-O, uh, meaning exactly on time in airline talk. And so uh, you've got to be careful. In other words, you just got to be alert. You've got to ask yourself questions. Uh, you know, who has to gain? Where does this come from? Follow the money. Um, what is the politics? You always just have to look because, uh, you know, President Trump is, is right. You know, fake news. Well, it, it, that's the reality. And it's been that way for a long time. So you've got to look and see. You hear that airlines are running at, um, you know, a high rate of, of uh, punctuality at the moment. Yeah, they are because they padded the schedule. They were right in noting that most people would pay no attention. Most people wouldn't even remember that the cross-country flight used to be five hours and it's now six and a quarter hours. They, nobody pays attention to that. Uh, they look at the schedule. We got in on time. Great. Terrific. That's how it works. Um, another example. Uh, retail, uh, brick-and-mortar retail deteriorating, right? Um, uh, Bed, Bath & Beyond, closing a bunch of stores. This chain, closing a bunch of stores. Most of the stores they're closing are in shopping malls. Well, yeah, because shopping malls are becoming empty. And this is all because of the internet and online shopping. Now, I don't doubt for a moment that the uh, online shopping trend and Amazon, obviously these are factors. But there's another factor as well. And this factor is very real. Um, it's, again, one that is not publicized. You have to dig for it. And if you think about it for a few minutes, you'll realize why they don't talk about it. But what this factor is, is uh, teenagers, they call them youths, rowdy misbehavior at malls. Well, that's putting it very mildly. Now, as I say, you can Google this, you can search for it in other ways, and you will discover that, yes, there is a great deal of fighting and you know, it's teenage rowdyism. No, uh, fighting, innocent bystanders getting robbed, stores being, store windows being broken, and uh, police make arrests. And guess what? They're juveniles. They get charged as juveniles and then handed over to their parents at the end of the procedure. Uh, nothing happens. This is 
a terrible disease throughout the country that has made malls empty of customers. That's one of the main reasons the malls are closing. It's as simple as that. It's not that Amazon's had no effect. Of course, it's had a huge effect. But uh, malls that manage to keep their environments pleasing and pleasant for people with a few dollars in their pocket who are coming to shop uh, are doing fine. And I can, I can tell you a few of these. One of these is Bellevue Square uh, in the state of Washington across the lake from Seattle. Um, I think the writing may be on the wall for them too. But by and large, they've managed to keep it a very pleasant experience. And they're doing fine. That mall's doing just fine. Uh, the problem is where malls have not been able to find a way to prevent rowdy young hooligans from making the mall the place where a hard-working American family says, you know what, let's go somewhere else. Uh, it's Saturday evening. It's true the mall is open for another hour or two. It's Friday evening. The mall's still open for two hours, whatever it is. And people say, nah, you know what? Why, why do that? There's, there's every possibility we're going to find ourselves in the middle of a miniature riot, and it's just going to be downright unpleasant. So, so there again, uh, the conventional wisdom that you hear all the time, oh, it's because of the internet, it's because of Amazon, the malls are shutting down. Actually, that's only half the story. Another part of the story is... Um, I can't call it anything more, anything other than rioting on the part of hundreds of uh, young people who come in there and they make it just impossible. I mean, it's, it's, it's frightening, it's unpleasant, uh, it's dangerous. Fine, we'll stay away. And that's exactly what happens. So goodbye malls, and there's a very good and straightforward reason for that. It's something that uh, we should understand. And so it is in, in all areas. We need to get a handle in understanding just what is really going on. And similarly with the report on atheism. Now, uh, some of you may not know that uh, this podcast can be heard on YouTube as well as, you know, SoundCloud and, of course, Glenn Beck's The Blaze and um, on LibSync. There are a lot of places you can hear this particular show, iTunes, obviously. And uh, on uh, YouTube, there tends to be a, a regular um, commenting going on. And so almost every podcast that goes up of these shows that goes up on YouTube elicits half a dozen or maybe more comments. And uh, as you'll know, if you use that particular platform, you'll know that I pretty much respond to all of them, certainly the majority of them. Uh, one I haven't responded to, um, but but should, is somebody who commented on the most recent one, a guy called Christopher, wrote, I don't get tired of you telling me your website. Matter of fact, it's getting to the point where I'm going to be ordering a product from it. <laughs> So God bless you, Christopher. Uh, you stand as a shining beacon of the free enterprise system, uh, the system of free interchange of labor that is what makes everything work so well in a free economy. And so uh, with no apologies, caveats, or warnings, the website is rabbidaniellappin.com, www.rabbidaniellappin.com. And if you uh, scurry over to the store section of the website, <clears throat> you will be able to find there a very interesting audio product, which you can download at a special price right now for listeners of this show. It's called Let Me Go how to overcome life's challenges and escape your own Egypt. <clears throat> Again, um, if you have anything in the way of slightly exotic tastes in coffee, well then when you go in <clears throat> 
to an unnamed national chain of coffee stores, you spend the same amount on your beverage as you would spend on acquiring the audio download of Let Me Go, How to Overcome Life's Challenges and Escape Your Own Egypt. Um, it's one of my favorite resources. I I loved creating it for you, and um, and I particularly like the cover because it says, let my people go, and then the words my people are, um, over, are, are, are scratched out and substituted the word me. So the real title of it is, let me go. And the idea, of course, is that the, the book of Exodus, um, so many chapters, more than 10 chapters of which are devoted to the Exodus, um, is something that really needs ancient Jewish wisdom to understand. Because if you think about it, the way I would have written that book, and I'm sure you're the same, I would have said, you know, here are the 12, uh, the 10 plagues, and there was a, a slavery and oppression in Egypt. God took the Israelites out of Egypt. And for those of you who don't have a very exciting life, you can go into all the details of how they got out in an appendix at the back of this volume. But that's not exactly what the good Lord did in his message to mankind and instead uh, broke the whole thing down into chapter after chapter after chapter. And ancient Jewish wisdom explains that the reason is because uh, it's not meant merely as a historic account of something that happened a long time ago. No, it's not like that at all. It is actually a manual for escaping your own Egypt. What is Egypt? Well, again, in ancient Jewish wisdom, we point out that uh, in the Lord's language, every name has a meaning. Right? It's not like uh, in 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 the names we're accustomed to using in English or in in German. Um, you know, Brunhilde is a name. Frederick is a name. Uh, Jennifer is a name. But in Hebrew. Every name means something. Egypt isn't just a place like E-G-Y-P-T, but the name actually means something. And it's something that inflicts you, afflicts you, and it afflicts me. It afflicts absolutely everyone we know. In other words, uh, we are all in the situation of being in our own Egypt. How do you get out of it? Well, first of all, what's it doing to you? Uh, How can you recognize it? And how do you get out And then you discover the true meaning of those 10 chapters in Exodus. This, by the way, is uh, regardless of whether you are a Bible-believing Jew or Christian, uh, or whether you're not. Maybe you even think of yourself as an atheist. Regardless, uh, here is a book called the Bible, 10 of whose chapters in the section known as Exodus have played an incredibly effective role in allowing Jews to escape some of the problems that afflict all of us going through our day-to-day living, allowing us to transcend beyond those problems and achieve the success that we've been awaiting, which is exemplified in Exodus by essentially the promised land. So, if you have any interest in exploring this aspect of the book of Genesis, of the book of Exodus, uh, how it serves as a guidebook, a step-by-step strategy manual for getting out of your Egypt into your promised land, that's what this program is all about. I think you're going to love it. And as I say, the investment is frankly insignificant for value that could be huge depending on how reliably you apply it in your life. Okay, so uh, uh, I've, I've spoken a little bit about how you've got to be very careful with news items. And one of the news items that popped out and was, was made much of in uh, recent times has been, oh, the uh, general um, social survey, a rise in atheism, uh, religions in retreat, oh, the atheists are on the march. All right, none of that is true. But uh, what happens is that the, um, the number of Americans who 
respond, you know, the multiple choice question, uh, are you Protestant, are you religion, are you Muslim, are you this, or none of the above, the number of people who say none of the above is now 23% of the population, and it's never been higher. So the jump from there to the idea that, oh, atheism's on the rise, as you can see, is not quite as simple as it would appear, particularly um, when you see that uh, those numbers, uh, they've changed, right? I mean, it, it would seem as if um, in uh, about 15 years, it went from 16% to 23%, right? Big change. But again, you've got to see the things in the full context in the same way to just say oh airlines have improved their their punctuality enormously in the last 10 years well yeah because because <laughs> they padded the schedules or uh, uh, or internet and amazon is killing shopping malls well they're they it's hurting them yeah but what's killing them is um uh out of control young americans who have what well, what's there to say i mean they're, they're they're causing untold havoc but that's not part of the news you don't hear about that and so similarly there are aspects of this that one doesn't hear about for instance let me give you an example if if we ask somebody um if, or let's imagine we did a poll in 1958 about uh, how do you feel about uh, homosexuals marrying each other? Um, and you look at that poll in 1955, shall we say, or 58, and then you ask that same question in a poll now. Like, Whoa, got to look at this. Look at the increase. Oh, America's become such a more tolerant country. Oh, this is incredible. So many more people. Now, I'm, I, I don't have such a poll comparison in front of me, but uh, as a thought experiment, you'd have no trouble uh, seeing that in 1958, a very large number of Americans would be unhappy with the idea of homosexual marriage. And in 2019, uh, a very large number of Americans would, would be okay with it. What's changed? It's not just attitudes, but it's also uh, the comfort that people have in saying certain things to a reviewer or to a poll taker or to, uh, 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 to a study. There's a very big difference. Uh, abortion. You can't just bring differences from yesterday to today and draw conclusions because the social environment has made it likely that people are answering the question differently. If you would have asked uh, back when, uh, should males be allowed to compete against females in wrestling? you would have been laughed out of the, the room. Nobody would have paid the slightest bit of attention. How silly is that question? Today, you'd get a different answer. So it doesn't just mean that attitudes are changing and that people are now different. What it means is that the way people respond to these questions has changed dramatically. Um the researchers have known this for years, particularly with questions about private matters like sexuality in general, where people say, oh, we're, we've studied, um, and there's an increase in uh, adultery, adulterous behavior going on. <clears throat> okay, again, um, the kind of people who are comfortable discussing this with a stranger are likely to be, shall we say, uh, the less restrained the more adventurous in a negative, in a bad way. So don't just take poll figures as actually meaning anything. And the same is true over here. Um, so, for instance, just one thing. Um, people may answer and say not religious or, or no religion, but then when a follow-up or a different study says, um, 
Are you religious or are you spiritual? Are you both? Are you neither? When you put in spiritual, the numbers change dramatically. A whole lot of people come out saying they are spiritual but not religious. Now, what are those? Well, you see, certainly in Judaism, a lot of people uh, conflate the word religious with the word orthodox, which or, or the word observant. Right. So what is an observant Jew? An observant Jew is a Jew who confines his diet. He only eats things that are kosher. Um, a religious Jew observes the Sabbath, meaning he doesn't turn on his computer or use a phone or get in his car or his motorcycle or on an airplane on the, uh, on the, from Friday night until Saturday night, the Sabbath. And um, I'll just, I'll give you one more thing. These are like the main three, okay? Uh, The third one is that he abstains from physical relationships with uh, his or her spouse um, for part of the month during uh, an obvious time. I'm, I'm being somewhat circumspect because I've received letters over the last couple of months about people saying that they like listening with their children, which is fantastic. So if you are listening as a family right now, if you are listening with your parents or you're listening with your children, um, that gives me a very, very good feeling. And I wish you'd write and tell me about it. I I, I do want to know about it. I really appreciate that. And I think it's wonderful. So anyway, just as much as possible, I want to try and uh, be circumspect. So those things would label a person an observant Jew, okay? Observant. What is a religious Jew? A religious Jew is somebody who is quite certain that God gave his message to mankind through Moses on Mount Sinai a little over 3,300 years ago. That's what a religious Jew is. All right, or uh, uh, maybe I'd stretch that a little bit. You know, somebody, no, yeah, leave it at that. That's a religious Jew. Now, many and probably a majority of observant Jews are religious. Um, I wouldn't say necessarily that all religious Jews are observant. In other words, there are many people who say, you know what, every indication is, yeah, I I, I would have to say I do think uh, the Bible came into existence through supernatural uh, methods, and uh, God probably did give it to Moses on Mount Sinai 3,300 years ago. Um, That should oblige me to only eat food that is kosher. It should oblige me to obey the fourth commandment about keeping the Sabbath. For a variety of reasons, I cannot or I do not or I choose not to do those things. So there is such a thing as religious Jews who are not observant. And then there are also observant Jews who are part of a culture. Uh, They live in a Jewish hood, a neighborhood, they wear Jewish clothing, uh, which shouldn't be, but is characterized as, uh, uh, you know, black coats, black hats, side curls, and the things you see a particular subgroup of observant Jews called uh, Hasidim wear. Um, there are many observant Jews who do not dress that way, but there are also uh, many Jews who do dress that way who are not fully observant. They're only observant when they are in their hood, but when they're on business trips, they are not. Then you've got uh, people who dress that way who are observant, but they're observant because of social reasons. Uh, Their families are. They wouldn't want to depart from the family customs and practices, so they do those things, but they don't actually connect them with God. Um, I'm I'm going through all of that just because I I know it best in my own religion, and I know that you will be able to translate that comfortably um, into whatever is your religion, or maybe you are among the no religions, okay? But the the point I'm making is that there are people who may well say no religion. Why? Because they've got turned off of church. But it doesn't mean that they they don't pray it doesn't mean that they you, you see what i'm saying the way people answer these things is um is not always scientifically reliable uh, 
So um, that that would be one, the, the, the sp- spiritual religious one. Now, again, I mean, obviously, they're also new age spiritual people. Fine. But um, the uh, Austin Institute for the Study of Family and Culture in, uh, in Texas, they did a recent study. And by the way, theirs was nearly 16,000 people in the study, whereas the uh, general survey study about atheism is only about 2,000 people. That's important. Anyway, what they found is that uh, more than 10% of the people who who say no religion, um, a whole lot of those people answered yes to the question, do you think there is life or some sort of conscious existence after death? You hear that? So right away, if there's 23% of Americans who say no to religion on that survey, 32%, I'm sorry, I said more than 10, it's actually 32% say yes to the question, do you think there is life or some sort of conscious existence after death? Well, that's not an atheist. (laughs) Um, How about this? Um, 6% of people who said no, non-religion, and who, according to many of the news reports about the survey, are now saying, well, 23% of Americans are atheists. Well, wait a sec. A whole lot of those said they believe in the bodily resurrection of the dead, like Jesus, right? (laughs) I mean, so atheism, it doesn't sound like it to me. And so uh, it's, it's really important to understand that there is a vested interest in the culture in increasing the appearance of the number of atheists. They have a vested interest in trying to do that. And it's important that we do understand that. It's a, it is a reality, and it is something that they very much want to promote. Um, in the same way that... Uh, the culture wants to promote the idea that marriage is on the rocks. And I'm sure you've all heard the completely fallacious figures that one in two marriages are going to end in divorce. It's simply not true. Right? It's, a, it's a fake number. Uh, I know how it was arrived at, but it's fake. You've all heard 94% of scientists believe in climate change caused by humans. It's not true completely not true but in the same way that the culture has a vested interest in expanding the number of failed marriages and that families are no longer right they have a reason for doing that do i have to tell you the reason well probably not i'm i'm sure i'm insulting you because you know the answer but one of the reasons is that uh, the overwhelming majority of people on welfare Uh, are unmarried people because by and large people who are married are independent Uh, the majority of married women are not liberals the majority of single women are liberals because it's a very simple reality it's how the world really works that women are not strong as strong as men and um, and therefore women seek a man able to protect them. Um, it's called a husband. Single women turn to the government to protect them. They think of 911. Dialing an emergency number on their phone is the equivalent to a husband. But that means you turn to government. Uh, a woman who is um, expecting a child or nursing a child uh, is not able to work as effectively as she was at a time when she was not pregnant. And so at a time like that, having a husband to support her is fantastic. That's part of the way the world is supposed to work. But if a woman doesn't, then she turns to the government to support her. And so since people in that category can be counted upon to vote Democrat, obviously the culture leaning left has a uh, preference 
for encouraging people to think that that's okay and to normalize that behavior. So as more and more people should have children out of wedlock and that more and more people should not get married. That's right. And you know what? They've been extraordinarily successful. If you just look at the way the figures for illegitimate children And I know some of you are going to, oh, you can't demonize the children. It's not their fault. I've actually covered that in an earlier podcast, so let's not go there right now. Do me the respect as I you of knowing that I'm not a complete moron. I may not be the smartest uh, crayon in the box, but uh, a moron I'm not. I'm not when I I know full well the uh, cultural norms against calling it illegitimate. But there's a reason I still say illegitimate births, the misery, the poverty, the unhappiness caused. Yeah, I think illegitimate is, is actually just a fine word for that. And, uh, and so the, the culture, unfortunately, encourages all of that tragically. Yeah, that's exactly what happens. And so um, here as well, the culture does everything it can to increase the notion that atheism is on the on the rise and on the increase. Um, really not so simple at all, and uh, certainly not at all accurate. The website is rabbidaniellappin.com, and uh, I don't want to use up uh, too much of our remaining short time uh, talking about the resource that I'm recommending to your attention. But it is called Let Me Go. Let Me Go is the title. It's an audio program that uh, you can easily lay your hands on. And um, it's uh, essentially a step-by-step strategy using the spiritual uh, tools of the book of Exodus for getting out of your own Egypt to the promised land. Um, it's not a long audio program, and it's not um, expensive at all. So it is, I think, in terms of uh, value, it's really one of the best things we do. I measure these things in terms of uh, uh, letters I get or what people say to me when I speak at churches around the country. Uh, I do keep a record of when people speak of something having helped them and and really impacted their lives, I always find out what it was. Well, a lot of the time, it's books like Thou Shalt Prosper or Business Secrets from the Bible. Uh, A lot of the times, it is audio programs like Madam, I'm Adam, Decoding Marriage Secrets from Eden. Uh, And a lot of the time, it's the program Let Me Go. Uh, you know, how to escape your own Egypt. Uh, at any rate, that is at www.rabbidaniellappin.com. And uh, I would love for you to have a chance to hear that, uh, ideally with uh, with someone in your family who, who could also benefit from it. Um, all of that at rabbidaniellappin.com. Also, a place to make sure you are on our mailing list, also a place to ask a question. There's an Ask the Rabbi page, and you can also catch up on some of the the really beguiling columns we've got there of Thought Tools, Susan's Musings, Ask the Rabbi columns, uh, and a whole lot else as well. So we love having visitors to the site. We love hearing from you. Again, you can uh, click on the contact us and shoot us an email. All of that at www.rabbidaniellappin.com. So do make that one of the stops on your internet meanderings. And the uh, the reason I consider it important to debunk the popular misconception of atheism growing like a wildfire in America, burning away the overgrown underbrush of old religions. <laughs> uh, sorry, folks, that's not exactly happening. Uh, Judeo-Christian traditional belief in America is uh, very active, very strong, very real. And it's just as well. Um, again, you know, I'm not an evangelist. 
Uh, I'm really happy with people making whatever decisions they want to make about their own lives. All I ask is that you should be well informed, that you should know how the world really works. That's all I really care about. And uh, for that, it is worthwhile, I think, being aware that as there has been a decline in religious connection in America, there has been a decline like that. Um, At the same time, let's also recognize that social ills have expanded, no, exploded, right? Um, Again, there are different ways of counting these numbers, but however you count them, these are very high numbers. Uh, 20% of Americans uh, suffer from an anxiety disorder. Uh, And again, these polls and these figures are also subject to the same kind of analysis I suggested earlier. But nonetheless, they are real in the same way that if the study shows 23% of Americans are uh, atheists, well, it doesn't really show that. It says that 23% answered no religion to the question of choosing which religion. Um, The... uh, it it's it nonetheless does reflect a secularizing in society that that has been happening anyone with eyes in their head knows that and in the same way anybody with eyes in their head knows that there's been a growth in the number of people the percentage of the population suffering from uh, some of the more common mental illnesses we know that uh One in six Americans takes antidepressant drugs. I mean, that's unbelievable. uh, It's a huge increase over 15 years ago when I looked at that figure as well. Uh, Younger Americans have shown the the biggest climb in uh, mental treatment. Um, uh, Around all Americans, about uh, 30%. Uh, the the diagnoses of depression have gone up about 30%. But if you look at millennials, it's up 47%. Again, I look at the, the figures with a little skepticism, but there's some indication there. It's, it's not exactly as they're saying, but it's, it is a, uh, uh, a reflection of something that is disturbing. Uh, at the moment, uh, I'm not proving that that is the result of the secularizing of America. It is a correlation. Is it causation? Um, That really is for you to decide for yourself if this is something that interests you. Um, I think that uh, there is a, a link. That's my own personal view. Why do I think there is a link? Well, because there are non-religious social scientists and psychologists who have um, attested to the fact that people who do attend religious services on a regular basis uh, are much more likely to do all kinds of good things like uh, describe themselves as happy and uh, survive heart attacks and all kinds of things like that. And so there seems to be enough reason to suppose that um, happiness is a very necessary part of the human condition. In my worldview, I take that as a given because in the five books of Moses, more than once there is an, a divine commandment to be happy. Now, I think I've told you the story that when uh, my mother told me that when I was about 11 years old, I said, oh, I should be happy. And she said, that's what I'm trying to tell you. And I said, well, buy me a motorcycle. And zap, boy, did I get four fingers across my cheek. Uh, I walked around with marks, finger marks on my cheek for the rest of the day. And she explained that uh, she's not responsible for my happiness. I was and that it was something I had to do. Well, okay, fine. One of the things we know is that two things that produce huge amounts of happiness are earning money, not getting money for free, earning money and having very good um, and close relationships with both friends and family, spouse being a huge factor there as well. And so uh, uh, religion helps those areas 
and again that's a large part of the work I do a lot a lot of the teaching I do and and that's one of the reasons that the coaching I do is for clients specifically in those areas I call them the four areas and how they intersect right friendship faith finance and family uh, the intersection of those four areas, how they all interplay with one another, uh, those are the areas in uh, the lives of my clients that I do coaching for. Um, I don't do coaching in gardening. I don't do coaching in uh, in uh, long-distance running. I don't do coaching in auto repair, uh, although I'd love to. But um, that's because these things are the things that are most powerfully relevant to us being happy and being happy is very much tied to being healthy and so i see religion judeo-christian faith lying at the core of many of these things Uh, i also see it lying at the core of civilization in general in other words if i have an interest in my society uh, continuing onwards into the future, then I would very much want a fervent uh, reigniting of the fuel that sustains civilization. And that, I believe, is Judeo-Christian thinking. Again, these are topics into which I've gone into great depth in earlier uh, shows you can always go back and listen to some of those if uh, you're interested and that'll be just fine but uh, for now that takes us as far as we're going to go today and so i thank you so much for being part of the show uh, thank you for your writing in thank you for your engagement with us at rabbi daniel wishing you a wonderful week with your friends and your family a wonderful week with your faith and your finances. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin. God bless.